This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. There's a certain quality to Joey Ross' work. It could be the honest use of materials or the uh, the quirky essentialness of his form language, or maybe it's the, the clean functionality of his products. From his ceramic speaker system to his poster series to his self-watering planter, maybe all you need to say is this. Joey Ross' work is really good. Stay tuned. note about today's show, uh, the audio quality changes a few minutes in. We started out with a phone call, but the signal kept dropping, so we switched over to Skype. It's a little odd, but the conversation with Joey was so great that we just kept pushing forward. Okay, enjoy the show. You know, I think... A lot of people that are listening to this are going to know of you, know who you are, have known some part of your work. But what which, what work do you think that you're known for? Um, well, I think right now I'm the best known for the ceramic speakers. Uh, it's just, you know, gotten the most press uh, of any of my stuff. And, you know, just judging by sales, it's definitely the top seller of any of my work. So I'd imagine that that's how... Unknown. Um, the posters, which sort of started as a, a side thing, you know, just a way to share stuff I've learned by um, practicing design over the years and running a business, uh, those have actually gotten to be more of a way that people initially encounter my work. I think because people share the images on Twitter and uh, Instagram and places like that. And uh, that attracts people who maybe aren't even looking at product design. So I think those are the two main ways that people, uh, people find out about me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was, uh, when I was kind of researching you ahead of, ahead of this, um, this show, you know, I was, I was familiar with your work, but I guess I didn't know much of your backstory. And like the first thing that kind of like popped up was, you know, it's it's even on your about page is that you have uh, you got your BA in industrial design theory from Swarthmore College, Swarthmore College, mm-hmm. and which is really interesting because one, I didn't know that Swarth- Swarthmore had industrial design, and I never heard mm-hmm. of like an industrial design theory as a major. And I feel like understanding those things is going to start tying all of these kind of threads together with all of your mm-hmm. work. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, an industrial design theory degree and what that meant for you. Yeah, definitely. So it's not actually a degree that uh, Swarthmore grants normally. Um, there's no design program at that college. So if, if people are listening in there in high school or thinking of transferring and they want to study industrial design undergrad, um, Swarthmore while it's a great school, does not actually have a design program. So this was a special major that I did, and it was uh, combining psychology and engineering classes, which are, they do have psychology and engineering departments there. Um, But basically, when I was applying to schools, I didn't know what industrial design was, and I didn't know I wanted to be a designer. Um, So I was really into creative writing, and so I was looking at schools with good creative writing programs. 
But while I was there, around the end of my sophomore year, um, I sort of had this realization that all of the stuff I wanted to say through my writing um, had already been said by other authors uh, with more skill than I thought I really could ever have. Um, so I, I didn't want to get into a creative discipline where I wouldn't be adding anything or, or expanding the range of the field. Um, but that's when I started to think more about design because what I really loved about creative writing was uh, kind of constructing these worlds that readers could step into and then bring their own interpretation to what my intention was as an author. And I'm attracted to the same thing in uh, in design, you know, kind of creating this object, but then once somebody owns it or somebody encounters it, the way that they use it and the meanings they bring to it sort of uh, are unpredictable and each each interaction with something that I created is, is unique because of the, the people who are using it. Um, but anyway, the reason I, I got into that is because looking at the world of products uh, from my perspective as a sophomore, I saw so much room for improvement or kind of expansion of what that field had. And I you know, if I pursue this, there really is an impact that I could have. Yeah. Well, creative writing. That's interesting that you thought that about uh, creative writing because, you know, I know many designers that kind of feel the same way about design is that, you know, well, everything's mm -hmm. already been done. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what more could I, you know, what's the point of adding another one of, you know, this widget into the world? And they go off and do something yeah. else. Yeah, I think it's a personal thing. You know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who get into creative writing, and there obviously are because, you know, literature is a, an ongoing field, um, who get into it and, and know that they can have this impact or that impact, and that they can say something or say something in a way that the world has not experienced. Um, for me, it was just, you know, looking at the world of products, uh, I had that same feeling about design. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I could definitely imagine thinking that you wanted to be a designer, like being, you know, one of the kids who, who draws cars or sneakers or whatever in notebooks all throughout high school and earlier, and always knows you're going to be a designer. And then you get to school and you see all of this stuff is already there um, and going into another field. So I think it's really just, you know, personally, what the sense that you have of, of what you can add to the world. Yeah. So you... So you're doing engineering and this uh, psychology, was it psychology? Mm -hmm. And and then you you come to this realization that you like that you are you've got this fascination with product. How did you? Is this a common thing at, at Swarthmore to to develop your own major? How did that discussion start? Yeah, it's fairly common. I mean, the school is definitely makes it easier to do a special major than I think a lot of other schools. But yeah. usually people who are doing that are doing like an international relations special major or like a philosophy of science, special, you know, things that are a little bit more academic right. than uh, product design. Uh, so it was, it was really a decision. I mean, I was considering transferring to an undergraduate product design program, the, you know, place like RISD or Art Center or, you know, one of the real industrial design schools. But 
after discussion with the guy advisor who's in the psychology, the value of sort of being in college as an undergraduate was more kind of getting a foundation of how to think about how stimuli or how things that I experience or, or knowledge that I have understood by other people. Um, I approach design and for that reason, I'm glad that I stuck to a more theoretical take on it for my undergrad at a school where I was pretty much the only person focusing on design. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that factor is like, is such a, like that explains so much to me about your work because there, there's a, there's a very strong um, sort of intellectual thread that like I, that runs through all of your work where it's, you know, I mean, I guess, yes, it's a speaker. Yes. It's a, you know, like a, like a teapot. They're basic things. However, the way you approach it just seems to be, you know, it's almost like you're from the, you're analyzing it from the out outside and you're kind of doing this, this, this thing. And I, and so I'm wondering like kind of what, uh, you know, when you, when you decided you're going to do this, this industrial design theory, where did you start and, and where did they, uh, kind of help guide you to even get to a place where you could start doing this stuff? Yeah. So my focus, you know, with my undergrad work and on my thesis was, through the lens of perceptual psychology, um, really looking at, you know, at a very physical level, how the eyes perceive things like shapes or letters or, uh, you know, I really focused on affordances, like how we perceive something that then we know we're supposed to grab it there or manipulate it this way. Um, and combined with the engineering, not only studying how we perceive things, but then using that information to figure out how we can design things that work with, you know, the innate human perceptual tools that we're all born with to create objects that are either simple to use or interesting to use, or, you know, sort of revealing these design tools that are really useful in um, creating objects that, I mean, I, I tend to try to make things that are interesting to use, um, but if I were designing like a medical device or a console for a car or something, I could also use those tools to make something really easy to use or really sort of innately understandable. Right. Right. So how, do, so how does this process work for you then? If, if you, you know, if you, you're starting a project, like I'm wondering if the, if the design process is uh is a different kind of exploration than maybe what like a traditional uh you know like a traditional education uh, in industrial design you know what what we would go through i'm kind of wondering what what the if if you're doing things differently and, and maybe there's something we can mm. learn from that yeah so i'm not exactly sure how to compare my process to what a typical designer would do so i'll just i can give an overview yeah. of how i how i do the design process so um when I started the project, you know, there's definitely the, uh, I say the sketching and then, uh, going into CAD as quickly as I can, um, because I learned more through working SolidWorks. But, uh, even before that, I always think about, like, how the product will live in the world and sort of what the meaning will be to somebody who either buys it or encounters it. And 
even before I'm thinking about shape or materials, I kind of think about what what effect I want this to have on somebody's either environment or day-to-day experience or sort of, you know, almost thinking, like, instead of starting from the inside of the product and then working my way out, I think from the outside first and then sort of let that inform what the shape is going to be, how big it's going to be, the materials I use, um, the type of interface I want to go for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting because it sounds like the execution, I mean, it's really not that different, but it's really that kind of, it's that initial stuff where, or I think that's, it's not unusual, but it's not, well, no, it is unusual because it's like, that's how we want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, but, t- you know, if we get a project from a client or from, it's an internal project, unless we're running it and even then sometimes there's other outside forces but it seems like when you start a project you really um you're really thinking about uh an interaction or a uh some sort of ritual or something like that that you're really interested in well i think that's also because you know the vast majority of the design work i do is going to be something that i produce within my own brand uh so I have, you know, the, both the luxury and the responsibility of making something that is really going to stand on its own in the world and won't be like a, an experimental skew that a large company can sort of toss out into the market to see how it does or, you know, some part of the strategic pricing where I'm trying to make the model with a few more features and the more expensive model. And, you know, it's just like due to the smallness of my company and also the complete design control I have over each project, I think that makes the process different from the way a lot of designers are working. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting about your approach is it's, it's sort of like, it's, you know, it's kind of like the opposite of someone like, you know, Tobias Wong, who is like, who's an artist, but is using kind of design as a medium it's a, it's a, you're naturally a designer, but it's like the ritual is your medium, right? Like that's kind of where you're playing and you're just, you're just talking about that, uh, with design. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that the, the stuff that I'm saying or the, the meanings that I'm trying to create are probably similar to the stuff I'd be saying or the meanings I'm, I'm trying to create if I stuck with creative writing or if I got into music or, you know, pr- pretty much any other uh, creative discipline. Um, it's not so much that the stuff I want to say requires design. It's that I, I think that I can say it the best through design and that I will benefit the people who experience it the most by doing it through design. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're getting back to your education a little bit what what were your uh resources that you were pulling off of you know like who were your design heroes and maybe it was uh you know you know thought heroes maybe is maybe a a better uh Mm. inspiration for you that were that you were kind of bringing into your design work uh well definitely a, a primary source for the thesis work i was doing 
specifically involved in like affordances and perceptual psychology was uh, Don Norman, hmm. who sort of, I think was one of the first to really take a rigorous, um, like uh, scholarly look at how people interact with objects. So, you know, the design of everyday things is sort of a, a classic now, but that approach, you know, coming from a perceptual psychology approach, looking at design was really influential in, in how I did my, uh, my undergrad work. Um, and I've, you know, beyond that, um, they're the designers who really inspire me, like uh, Tapio Orcala, um, the mid-century Finnish designers, a really big inspiration. Um, Robert Irwin, who's not not a designer but an artist, um, his work and his writing has been really inspirational. Um, I think I'm drawn to people who maybe started trying to be minimalists and realized that that's not really where their work needed to be, and so are kind of kind of like their work almost reads like they're reformed minimalists and mm. that that's kind of you know i mean i just i just design my work as each piece needs to be i don't really try to make it seem like it's within a certain category or even that piece to piece there's a continuity between them yeah. um but i think what what people have said is that my stuff looks like maybe it started more minimalist than it ended up being and i just added back whatever was necessary to either achieve the meaning or the function that i wanted yeah, so when you say reformed minimalist, what does that mean to you? I think it means like, you know, if you think about like the, the lens on a camera, it, it takes the field of view and the light is compressed down in a cone essentially to like a, an infinitely small point inside the, the center of the lens. And then when it is then projected upside down, either on the CMOS sensor or the piece of film or whatever it's projecting, um, it sort of expands back out again. So I think like, you know, in as a creative person looking at the world, it seems chaotic and, and overwhelming. And you think that your job is to be a filter for a lot of that and to just filter things out and to be left with this uh, pure and brilliant essence of what you want to say. Um, and when you're at that point, you know, that's when you're doing the super, super minimalist stuff. But then once you're there, you can sort of expand back out again, informed by that point of like zero, uh, adding in gestures or adding in meaning that you really you really choose and is really um, what am I? It's very purposeful. Yeah. The things that you put back in there. None it's, al of it is random. it's almost like you're letting the humanity back into it a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because the I mean the thing about minimalism is it's very very artificial. You know, nothing in nature is really minimalist the way that minimalism is thought of in design or in writing. Uh it's like a very kind of artificial human created state. So what I try to do is think about what are the fewest number of gestures or fewest number of design features that this needs to have in order to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And that often doesn't lead to a minimalist outcome, but it is, I guess the, the philosophy is kind of minimalist and like, what is, what is the fewest number? What's the least that I could do? Even if that's more than 
just having like a, a square vessel for a teapot. Yeah. Yeah. So you, what were your plan? Like you, you've created this, this major for yourself mm -hmm. and what were you going to do with it? Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't totally sure when I was in the middle of it. I wasn't really planning on starting my own brand in college. Uh, I remember I was looking for internships with like IDEO and Frog and places like that. Yeah, and, and how, how did uh, they react to someone like you? <laughs> I think they had, they had no idea what to, what to make of me. Yeah. So I ended up getting an internship with uh, Dror Ben Shetrit, who's a New York designer, which was great. I think I, I'm actually very happy that I ended up in a small studio like that yeah. instead of a, a larger place. Um, but yeah, I think that I, I really just wanted to be a practicing designer and I didn't really know what that meant in in the context of you know being a professional and, and supporting myself in some way um so yeah I, I was really trying to create a thesis that showed the way that i think about design and at the same time have a portfolio of design ideas that came from that yeah but again my portfolio didn't look like a design student's portfolio so i think that's why it gave these larger firms i applied to uh some pause right Right. So then at some point you become an entrepreneur and it seems like it happens fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was really because um, after my internship, I, I was looking for jobs at, at design companies. And I, I don't know if it, it was that I didn't really know how to present my, myself in a compelling way or they just really were looking for someone with a, an understandable, predictable set of skills who they could plug into their. Yeah. We know someone who frame. can do Photoshop. Yeah, just do Photoshop. Exactly. Yeah, and I definitely wasn't that. Right, and um, I I started showing my work to design blogs, which were back then. I mean, that was like two thousand seven. They were fairly new. Like the blog thing was becoming, take you know, it was, the blogs were trying to be taken seriously by a lot of people who weren't into technology or weren't into these specific communities. But it was still fairly new, and I think when these blogs and I think cool hunting was was the first with the teapot when they posted these renderings a lot of people who read them just assumed that this product was available they didn't really understand that it was just some recent graduates design idea so I started getting emails after um, the teapot got this initial coverage people asking me where they could buy it or how much it was and even stores contacting me saying that they wanted to start stocking it and I had, I had no plans for that. And I didn't even know that people would be interested in that capacity. So that initial press coverage at around 2007 is what got me thinking along the lines of producing my own work and um, making a business from there. But I definitely didn't approach it at any point as I want to start this, this business because starting a business is what I want to do. It was more thinking about what do I need to do in order to support my ability to continue designing things and also to get the things that I design to people who would really appreciate them and, and enjoy them. Yeah. So at, at what point then does the leap happen where you get, you've got all this press for this, for your teapot and then you go, okay, I'm going to make this thing because people want it. What? Yeah. I mean, the, the financials are really the big thing in that case. And this was before Kickstarter. So I didn't know really how to close that gap between people wanting it and 
being able to put it into production. Um, but I was working as a copywriter at the time for this catalog. And I essentially stayed at that job for about six months, um, saving up enough money not to put it into production, but to just be able to pay my bills while I figured out a way to put it into production. So once I had enough saved up, I quit and worked on producing this teapot 24-7. And it took about a year. I traveled to Asia and I looked around the different manufacturers there. I, I talked to different manufacturers in the U.S., um, and once I had a production plan in place, I started taking pre-orders, um, based on all of the people who had emailed me. And I also, you know, told the blogs who'd written about me that I was starting to take pre-orders and that's really what got it going. Um, I just set up a PayPal link on my site where people could pre-order the teapot. I gave an estimated shipping date and I was able to raise enough to get into production. And that's you know, pretty much, pretty much how the whole thing started. Yeah. I mean, that, there's such a great, uh, naivete with that mm-hmm. where, you know, and I think your advantage was the fact that you didn't learn, you know, the supposed right way to do something, but what yeah. you sound, what you, what you're ex- describing is sort of this way, like th- this way that has only been developed within the past five to 10 years of doing something like th- mm-hmm. like this and i and and it's interesting that you know what i'm what i've been seeing more and more lately it's usually people making things who maybe didn't have the traditional background of making things but had all these other were learned all these other newer skills that actually helped them leapfrog someone that who maybe had a, a slightly different mindset of how to Mm-hmm. how to go about doing this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in talking with students who email me or who I meet in different places, I think that there's people try to sort of rationalize their dreams way too early. Right. You know, somebody exactly. knows they want to do this creative thing and they then they start to think, okay, wh- what do I have to do to actually be able to support myself? And, you know, that's how people end up doing like point of sale design for 20 years when they really want to be a sculptor or something. And I I think that that was necessary and that was practical, you know, 10 or 15 years ago before you could really access potential customers or potential supporters easily. Um, And I think now the danger is, or the risk is limiting or trying to like monetize your idea or your dream too early before you people can really get excited about it and before you can really get excited about it. Right. Because what kind of made the whole teapot year work is that I was so obsessed with getting this into production. Like every day I just dreamed about having this rendering physically in my hands, being able to make tea with it. And that's really all I thought about. And I think that that kind of intensity is within everybody's capability it's just kind of allowing yourself to really get drawn into a project to that degree without thinking about practical concerns until maybe later down the road sure sure so then at some point uh let's let's talk about the speakers because this this is Mm kind of i think I don't know if it's 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 the the biggest most recognizable thing you've done. We talked about that a little bit, but it certainly seems like this this starts to be the culmination of a lot of different things 
for you as are, are these speakers to so talk about how does this project even start for you um it, i've always been into speakers like since since i was young i was into taking apart speakers and, and putting them back together i never thought there was any sort of practical application um but again the more I, I look at things, the more I think staying away from that idea of practical application is important um, for a career doing something creative. Um, so I was always into speakers. Uh, the teapot was out. And what I was starting to think about the teapot is that it was almost too much on the side of sculpture. You know, people really love the teapots that they got, but I don't think they were using them every day to make tea. I know that I certainly wasn't. I had five of these in different stages of development at any time in my apartment. And I, I never really used them to make tea, even though I had tea every day. Uh, so that was something that started to bother me. And, you know, now working on the, the version two of the teapot, I'm specifically making it much more usable. And I think people will want to use it every day, but we can get into that later. Anyway, what inspired the speakers is I wanted to create something that was equally, if not more sculptural and, and visually interesting, but was something that would be part of the user's everyday experience. Uh, so that got me thinking about other kitchen objects or maybe uh, furniture, LED lamps, and then speakers just seemed like, you know, looking at what the market had at that point, it was either very high-end, highly priced audiophile-oriented stuff or injection-molded speakers that were really more about features or marketing than about sound quality or design quality. And that's what got me thinking, you know, I'm very passionate about audio design. I'm, I'm passionate about things that are sort of like furniture, but sort of like tech objects. And I saw this opening in the market for speakers around the price point I was going for, where there was nothing that was about sound quality and materials. Um, so in coming up with the design, I looked at all the assumptions made by other companies in that space, and wireless was sort of a given, even though wireless technology wasn't that great in those days. The sound quality of Bluetooth was really bad, specifically. Um, so wireless, uh, portable, um, kind of different colorways available, uh, just like kind of selling speakers as if they were totally gadgets. and in that price range, I didn't see a lot of options for serious speakers. And that's why I decided to to go for that. And that's what started to inform the design. Yeah. So then after you've kind of decided you're doing speakers, where did you, where does your kind of research take you and, and why did you settle on ceramic? Uh, well, initially I wanted to do stainless steel in a similar shape. And after talking with uh, some people on speaker builder forums and audiophile forums, I learned that that would be really difficult to achieve good sound quality. Um, there are some cast stainless steel speakers, but they're huge and they're really, really expensive. Uh, so I didn't, I kind of got rid of that idea. And I started thinking of other materials that would let me achieve the same type of organic shape I wanted. And ceramic, uh, you know, porcelain specifically started to make a lot of sense. And that's, when I started to investigate how porcelain is manufactured on a large scale, you know, slip casting versus molding um, versus hand throwing. And uh, it really, the more that I looked at this material, the more it really seemed to make sense and even 
could become the focal point of this design. Yeah. But that there's that's kind of not the only unusual material you end up you ended up using. You're using uh you know that you have these uh plywood stands that you fold together and and mm. put you know that kind of holds the speaker into place. Mm-hmm. You've got these cork caps to to uh finish off the the back of the the speaker, you know, how how did you come to those? You know, I just I, I kind of forced myself to stop thinking that I was designing a speaker and to just look at the size and the functional requirements of the thing, not even calling the speaker the thing that I wanted to do. And those materials and those shapes um, made the most sense given what I was trying to achieve. Yeah. You know, it's like with teaching kids to to draw, to do life drawings. You have to tell them, like, don't think that you're drawing a flower because you'll just draw what you think of as flower, the, the flower clip art that exists in your mind. You're not going to draw the object in front of you. So I try to do the same thing when I'm designing something. Like when I'm designing speakers, I don't think speakers. I just try to think what are the functional requirements and the aesthetic meaning I want to achieve with this object and just go from there. And everything sort of you know, becomes obvious at a certain point once you get to a stage with the design where you're ready to start picking materials. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've got a, a, a personal question about the, the speakers. And I, there, I've always just been really drawn to this design. But there was one detail I was kind of like, this is sort of an interesting, you know, why did he do it this way sort of detail. And it's the, mm-hmm. um, it's the kind of the Pepto-Bismol pink speaker cables. Mm. <laughs> and... and <laughs> I'm kind of wondering why, why, because it, it it's very unexpected, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, you know, what was kind of the driver of that? Um, well, I wanted each material. I mean, with all my products, I want to modify each material as little as possible. And I thought, you know, the cords have these plastic sheets. What is like the most plastic color I can think of? Because there's no real natural color for that process you know not using any sort of pigment is it's it's essentially the same it's not like anodizing aluminum versus not anodizing aluminum the the color is inherent in the process so i thought i want to make this as plastic a color as i can to contrast with all the natural materials i'm using um and also just to make make the materials even more straightforward and even more apparent you know, if I left the cord sort of an off-white, it it would be like, it wouldn't be quite as bad as, you know, a, a fake wood grain, but it would, it would be in the same vein. And so I wanted to make it as obviously plastic as possible. And that's what led to that decision. Yeah. So now you've got these, uh, you've got your speakers and you've got this, this subwoofer now that's kind of you know, it's a, it's also this ceramic tube and, it, you know, the video on your site's beautiful because you see the, the reverberations coming from the side of this, mm. uh, this subwoofer. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, you didn't start out to create a brand, but you sort of, you sort of have anyway, because now you've got these two products, they're connected to each other. How, mm-hmm. how are you approaching developing, you know, is, is this a brand for you now, these speakers, or do you... Are you going to be 
bored of them and this is sort of the end of the line of these speakers and you love them and you're going to keep selling them but this is kind of it and you'll move on to something else or how do you yeah i don't think i'm ever going to get bored of audio i mean that's always going to be something that i'm designing within um i think where i am right now with the speaker system i'm not going to create something that's going to make current owners of the system want to upgrade anytime soon or, or get rid of their system anytime soon i, I really my dream is to see my stuff being used 50 years from now, the same thing that somebody bought, you know, when it originally came out. Um, so my approach to expanding that line is creating add-ons that will expand the functionality of the system and sort of work with the system's strengths, which are, you know, the build quality, but also the detail that can be achieved with the, the sound uh, using the components that I picked. Um, so the what I'm adding this year, the next thing after the uh, subwoofer, which I launched last year, is wireless capability, mm. and I'm packaging that as a as its own unit that's compatible with all current versions of the speakers. Um, and wireless has always been the most requested feature, but I held back from building it into the original and and having it as an add-on up until now because the sound quality just really wasn't as good as wired. Um, but recently the Bluetooth codec has been updated um, and there's a specific codec uh, called aptx HD, which is better than CD quality, but the main test for me was listening to a track streamed and then the same exact track connected via wire to the system and really not being able to discern any difference. And at that point, I felt comfortable um, kind of building that into a product. Yeah. You know, I I feel that this, uh, you know, your speaker system, and at one point you also had a concept for like a felt mouse. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that this these are really important um, points in the history of, electronics because we're, we're starting to do this long transition from, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, a lot of electronics were in these kind of stamped metal boxes and we've, then we slowly moved them along to these beige plastic boxes and then they became mm -hmm. colorful and then they're black plastic boxes, but they've mm -hmm. always kind of had a, um, an aura of otherness mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like where we're starting to go now and and your work's definitely a, a part of that and and ironically it seems speakers in general just seem to be going this uh renaissance where everyone has a bluetooth speaker and they all look completely different from each other and they're all doing these all interesting unique things mm -hmm. um but we're starting this transition that's where it's technology is now being less influenced by being technology and mm -hmm. being uh, you know, integrating into our lives and it's almost being as, as much influenced by like furniture and modern design uh, more so than just being technology for technology's sake. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that the role that furniture played in the middle of the 20th century is being, you know, the torch has sort of been passed to daily life type technology. And, you know, the reason why I don't think I, I ever got really into furniture design is because I saw that the, the mode of sort of impacting people's daily lives 
lies within technology now. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have something that comes out like the Google Glass and it sort of becomes this joke because it's it's so much about just the technology talking to itself and not really considering the context that it lives in. Mm-hmm. And I think that what technology can learn from the history of design and specifically furniture and tabletop design is how it can both, you know, fit into and have an impact on um, users' everyday lives. Yeah. So let's talk about these posters. Mm. How, how did this start? Uh, so the first one, the Charlatan Martyr Hustler, was like a commission almost because I had these friends in San Francisco who were starting this uh, magazine, experimental magazine project. And originally it was called 48 Hours Magazine because they would their goal was to just take submissions, uh, lay out the magazine, edit it, everything, get it pr- off to the printer within a space of 48 hours. And they just wanted to see if they could do this. So the initial issue was called Hustle. And that was the theme. And I think they were, they had a lot of really good articles, but they were low on visual stuff. So uh, my friend who was one of the founders contacted me, you know, just knowing me as a visual person to see if there's anything I could submit using the subject Hustle. And so I came up with this design and the design that's on my site is, is further refined from the design that I submitted because I did that original one in like an hour. Um, but this is like something that I'd been thinking about, you know, to myself and this sort of difference between the shapes uh, for a while and sort of using it as a way for me to think about opportunities that were in front of me or how I should spend my time or how best to kind of direct the, the brand I was building. Um, and yeah, I basically, I did the design for that first issue and when it came out, uh, a lot of people liked it and they were interested in getting prints. And so I thought, you know, I should just kind of treat this like a, one of my products and, and have it manufactured essentially using a local letterpress place. So that's how that happened. And it was kind of surprisingly successful. And that encouraged me to take other things that I've learned or other thoughts and make two other posters um, that sort of expand on that. Yeah, they're and, al- they're almost these uh, designy, intellectual, motivational style posters, or just but they're really you know. And I think what prevents them from being cheesy is just they're just so cleanly done and so uh, you have to think about them as opposed to like you know you think of like those those old motivational posters where it's like a guy canoeing and it's like, you know, like the taglines, like confidence or something like that. And it means, right. you know, it could, it could literally mean anything, but there's something about yours that uh, you have to engage with it to really kind of get it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I mean, that's what I go for. And I'm glad that that's what you get out of it. Um, Cause I'm definitely not a motivational poster type guy. <laughs> so it it's always, yeah. I mean, I even think about this sometimes. Like I don't, I definitely don't want to be known as a, motivational poster producer you know i mean i'm I'm in this to to be a designer so given my lack of any sort of background in graphic design i've done all of the posters in solidworks and just outputted the 3d models i make as if they're going to be manufactured um, as line drawings really and that's what yeah yeah and that's what leads to the sort of look that that they have they're very similar to the PDFs I send to manufacturers to yeah. get a price quote on a new part. 
Have you ever thought about making them actually three dimensionally? Yeah, you know, I have. I have. You know, especially the the first one doing sort of desk, you know, cast iron desk yeah. pieces. So that's getting a little into the territory of like executive gifting. And I, I don't know. That's that's sort of yeah. not the mess. I'd have to do it very carefully. But it's definitely something that I think about. Right. Yeah. You have to do it kind of more along the kind of the way the. Constantine Boyum did kind of the uh, exact the, yeah the, the like desktop the disaster, the the disaster, disaster series yeah I thought that was great yeah something like that yeah so I want to end on this and it's you know you you're 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 obviously kind of this this um you really kind of think about the work that I, that you do and I don't mean that like other people don't but there's mm. there like that it seems like there's a lot of pleasure driven from really kind of looking at all sort of cultural aspects of an object before you take it on. Mm -hmm. And, it, it, you know, there's some aspects of you that there's sort of like a you're sort of this cult, cultural anthropologist who's been living with the natives to kind of better mm -hmm. understand the culture, mm -hmm. you know, and the way you've kind of approached design is that you've 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 become this outsider who's kind of lived in the world. And now you're kind of you kind of like come back and and when you present something new like you know, these speakers, it's like you're like this is you talking about design and culture through that you know you're coming back from the wilderness and and presenting this object that you've found sort of. And that's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering what have you learned about design and culture? now that you've been doing this for you've been living with the natives for a while and yeah and, and what are what have you kind of been you know what have you pulled out of that like what what has that taught you i i think the biggest thing um and i'm, I'm still sort of internalizing this is uh a designer's only strength or designer's only advantage is his or her own voice you know there's no I used to be really obsessed with reading the design blogs and sort of seeing what the trends were and, and really making sure my social media was on point and just kind of trying to like out entrepreneur competition or sort of approach it from that direction. And I, I never really thought I was an exceptional designer at that point. I thought it was just smart about marketing and, and stuff like that. And I, you know, I absolutely believed in the work I was doing, but I didn't see that as the the ultimate, ultimate kind of goal and value. But I've come to see just through experience and, and how things have gone that anyone doing something creative, that really needs to be your primary value because that's that's really the only un, unassailable thing that you have. Like nobody else can be you and interpret stimuli and filter things and add to things the same way that you can. Uh, and so every part of a creative person's career needs to sort of be structured around how can I best present this unique take on the world that I have? Um, how can it be presented in an undiluted but very appreciable way to people? Um, and having that as a, a primary goal really makes puts everything else into place really well yeah well that's a great place to end uh thanks a lot joey for uh for coming on the show yeah thank you for having me this is really fun
That's our show. I want to thank Joey for being our guest today. You can see and buy his work at joeyroth.com. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. And when you're there, if you like what you're hearing, give us a nice review so other people can find us as well. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all the stuff you heard us talking about with Joey. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at After School, and you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon. <laughs>